We are on our fourth week of talking about discipleship. And one of the reasons for doing this series is we see that word thrown around quite a bit. And the Church of the Nazarene has had that statement that our, our mission is to make Christ-like disciples in the nation. And so it's easy to have that, you know, we could put the sign up and put it all over the place. But, you know, often we find out there's a, a difficulty when we have a discussion because what I think discipleship is and what you think discipleship is might be completely different. So we've been trying to go back a bit to look at what is really discipleship. And one of the first things we looked at, we thought, well, before you can even talk about discipleship, what does it mean to be a Christian? And so we use that term. We know all around the globe people use that term, I'm a Christian. And we talked about the fact for some people, Christian is just a matter of ticking off a box on some form that you fill out. Is that what it means? And so we looked at the first week that a Christian believes, right? They believe that in Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. They receive, and from him they have received this justification, this righteousness. And we went on about that. And then we said, you know, it doesn't do any good to say that you are a Christian, which actually means a little Christ, and yet you choose not to obey what your King and your Lord tells you to do. And so we looked at the reality of what is a Christian, and then we looked at what is a disciple. So if we're using this term, disciple, what does that mean? Now, I know for some of you I'm repeating, but some haven't been here. But if you're like me, and repetition is good. The memory doesn't quite work like it used to. So I need to hear it. And so we looked at what did Jesus say his disciples, right? Who were they, and what would they do as disciples? And he said, well, a disciple is a person who denies yourself takes up your cross, and follows me. Then last week, we said that Jesus is calling us to be his disciples. All of us are called. It's not just a few that are called to be a disciple. All of us are called, if we consider ourselves Christians, then we are all called to be his disciples. It's not an elite group. And we talked about the fact that often when we use the term disciples, we think of 12 men going around in robes, <laughs> not doing what Jesus asked them to do, learning the hard way. And that's not <clears throat> all that it's about. All of us are called to be disciples. And so we challenged you last week. Do you hear his call on your life? And the call is what? Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Today, in this fourth Sunday of discipleship, I was thinking about the reality now. What is this relationship of a disciple to Jesus? And so we're looking at what is Jesus saying to us is to be our relationship with him. If we consider ourselves disciples of Christ, what does that look like? And that's why we had this passage. Thank you, Mark, for reading our passage today. For many of us that have been raised in the church, a very familiar passage. But I wanted you to know that this passage in particular, often what we do is we're taking it out of the context, and we lose sight of the importance of passages of Scripture in context. This is right after the Lord's Supper. This is right after they've had this feast together, they've celebrated the Passover together. Jesus is saying to them, this is my body, take, eat. This is my blood as he gives the cup. And he says that he's making this new covenant He's saying to them, this old covenant that has come down through generations, they don't realize it that night. But as they're there, he is saying to them, 
This is now the new covenant that I'm giving to you. And so they've left this upper room, a very joyous time, and they're on the roads now, walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was the time of the year when they would be pruning the vines. They would be pruning the vines, and the custom was that as they pruned the vines, as they cut off branches that they didn't want anymore on the vine, they would throw it in the pathway. And as they threw them in the pathway, someone would come and gather them, and they would burn them, because that's all they're good for. Uh, you, they didn't even provide heat if you wanted to heat your home. You wouldn't go around in PEI trying to heat your home with a bunch of grapevines. You wouldn't have much heat. You'd probably freeze to death. And so what they did was, as they're, as they're walking now through this Garden of Gethsemane, they would be probably walking on these branches, stepping on them, all these branches that have been thrown in the pathway. And so as they're doing that, Jesus begins to give this private teaching to his closest companions, the disciples, realizing that Jesus knows that he soon will be arrested, and before long he will be crucified. Now I don't know about you, but chances are, when you know that you're in your last days, you want to share with somebody the most important things. You want to say those things that you probably wouldn't say just over a meal. And so Jesus begins to have this discourse with them about what does an intimate relationship with him look like. And so Jesus points to these vineyards around them, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. Why was that important? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I don't, you know, I was going to bring up some change this morning, and I didn't have any change. You know, it's the way that we go lately, right? Everything is packed, so it doesn't quite work. But if you had a quarter in your pocket this morning, and I asked you to flip it over, whose, whose emblem would be on the back of that coin? I heard a few people say it. On the back of the quarter, whose emblem is on it? The queen, right? The queens on our coinage. Well, back in Jesus' day, on the coinage, the temple coin, that's why he said, render unto Caesar who is Caesar's, because on Caesar's coin was Caesar's face. But what was on the back of the coin of the Jewish people was a vine. Because the vine was their symbol. They used the vine as the symbol of Israel. And so they felt that they were God's people and that, that was they were the vine, the one true vine. And, and interesting enough, though, when you get into the Old Testament, you go through the prophets, the prophets said they were a vine that had grown wild. In other words, they had moved far from God. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples now, as they're walking through this pathway, I am the true vine. So they've just come from this upper room with the symbols of a new covenant. And now they are walking and he is saying, I am the true vine. Because what's going to happen soon is these Jewish men who have been faithful to Judaism all their life, because they're following Jesus, what is going to happen is they're going to be pushed out of the Jewish faith and not accepted. And so Jesus is preparing them and saying, all that you've learned all your life is not the true vine. I am the true vine. And so it's important for us to realize that today he is saying this to them. What he's saying to them it is not important about your bloodline. It's not important that you were born a Jew. What will be important now is your relationship with me, the true vine.
See, spiritually, Jesus is that life force. Some have used that term, the living water, the fountain, that gives us the spiritual energy that we need to live a life and a relationship with him. And then he goes on to say that God is the gardener. Some passages will say the gardener. Some will say the vine dresser. And how's your garden doing this year? Anybody gardening? You? I know mine's not doing very well. <laughs> it's not doing real well. And you know what I found out? Well, gardening means attention. Right? There was a story in our family with a family member one time. Mike took them to uh, go to what would have been like a place like Kent to get some plants. And uh, they said, we want no maintenance flowers. <laughs> no maintenance plants. And the person rightfully said, you can find low maintenance plants, but you can't find no maintenance plants. Because ultimately, then go to the dollar store and get some fake flowers and stick them in your flower pots, because that's the no maintenance plants, which I've seen people do in Florida and other places. But, you know, the reality is gardening means that you need to give attention. And I haven't been doing too well lately of giving anything the attention that it needs. And so it struggles. But God is our gardener. God is our vine dresser. And he is the one who gives that attention to the plant. And like any good gardener, why do we work so hard in our gardens? Because we want to see flowers. We want to see our trees mature and be strong and healthy. We want to see fruit. Nothing worse than planting several rows of peppers and you don't get one pepper. <laughs> Been down that road a few years. You know how much I paid for those pepper plants? Where's the peppers? There's not even flowers on them. We believe that if we're going to put that work into it, you're going to see what? Fruit. There's going to be a harvest. That's what you're looking forward to. Or you wouldn't get involved in it in the first place. But some of you said, Pastor, that's what I do. And so God wants us to bear fruit. God wants us to be mature disciples that lead productive lives here on earth. I mean, I, I cannot get that across enough. That God wants you to be productive. He wants you to live at your best. And so God is that gardener, that vine dresser that does what he can with his disciples that they can live productive lives. And this is a word we don't like to hear, but, you know, snip, snip. He likes to prune us. But his aim in pruning us, as we hear here, is that we would bear even more fruit, that we would be fruitful. This is a statement that I, when I read this in preparation this week, it really challenged me. So you prune to stop the vine from wasting its energy and being unproductive. Typically, you prune the branches that are growing inward. And you begin to prune that you're trying to get the shoots and encourage it to grow outward. I thought, well, there's a message right there in itself, right? That God prunes us because we're wasting our times on things that we shouldn't be. God prunes us because we're turned inward. And oh my goodness, during a pandemic and COVID, if that's not been the truth, if we're not careful. And he wants us to reach out outward towards other people. So Jesus says in verse 5, we are the branches. And the thing that that's saying to us is, he is the vine and we are the branches. That says that my position is derivative. My position is dependent upon him. 
My position is incomplete without him. And so there's a sense of humility here. That we humble ourselves before the Lord. He is the vine and we are the branches. He tells us that if we are a branch, it means that you need to abide in him. Some translations, verse 4, will say remain in him. And see, branches are unable to bear fruit on their own. They must be connected to the vine. This is why we're talking today that this is about relationship. Jesus is saying that you need to be connected to him. Abide in me and I in you, verse 4. See, Christianity is far more than beliefs. Christianity is far more than just our behaviors. Christianity is more than just following a list of rules. I don't do this, I don't do that, we do this, we do that. It is so much more than that. See, in our place of salvation, we have come, we talked about this, about Christianity, we have come into this union with God. And our legal status has changed. We use that term, I am justified, because it's a legal term. Justification means that I am the sinner, I am the one who is guilty. I stand before the judge, and all of a sudden I am told that I get to go free, because my slate has been wiped clean. My rap sheet, remember we talked about that, my rap sheet has been wiped clean. So I am now in union with God because of what Christ has done for me. I have been purified. I have been cleansed. I have been justified. And so I have union with God through Christ Jesus. But we need to realize that this journey of discipleship is so much more than just unjustified. It is now a communion. It's not just union with God through what Christ has done. It is a communion. It is a relationship. It is a friendship. It is, as someone put it this way, a life-giving, soul-thrilling, joy-producing communion with God. The Christian faith is about, yes, union, making a decision. I can put back in my life, uh, August 1984. There was a day when I made a decision that I would follow Christ. I, I can show you the day of that union, but it's communion with Christ. Because I would say to you, what does that mean if I have not been communing with him every day since? It's, it's like being married. Pastor Mike and I will be married just uh, October 44 years. And I can point to the day, praise God, I can still remember the day when we stood in our little church in Mississauga, the four of us, and made our vows before God and got married. We are in union as husband and wife. But I hope in 44 years we've communed with each other. Or something's wrong. Because it's a relationship. And this is the importance that Jesus is saying here to his disciples. This is about a relationship. I like what Eric Reed said. Union with Christ without communion with Christ is joyless Christianity. And have you ever met any joyless Christians? So Jesus invites his disciples to abide, to remain. You know the word here is connected to the Greek word that means home, house. I like that somebody, we were listening to someone last night who was speaking, and, and they said, you know, to uh, remain or to be with Christ is to, as like if I was to be with you, I would walk into your house and do what? Sit down. I would sit in your presence. 
And so there's this idea of remaining in me, abiding in me, at home with me, that there is a sense of being present with him as he is being present with us, and we're sitting with him. Right? We're sitting with him. Fruit here is this inner fruit. We read about it in, in the book of Galatians, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Notice fruit, not fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there is also that outer fruit that is those works, those good works. Remember, we don't work for our salvation, but there is this natural outflow that if I'm in communion with Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me that there should be a natural outflow of good things done for God in His kingdom. And we should never take our position with Christ for granted. Now here's the problem. Ego. We talked about this before. Pride. Uh, pride and ego is what reared its ugly face all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And ego is the very thing that will get in the way for any of us abiding with Christ. We live in a day, especially in North America, where we promote independence. You know, you hear people say, well, I'm my own man. I did it my way. Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Women, I'm my own woman. Don't you tell me what to do. And, and, and we can bring this attitude into our relationship with God and even into our faith. And there's this independence today that cultivates a spirit of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And we pride ourselves in the progress. And look what I've been able to accomplish. And look what I've been able to do. And we're in a day of positive thinking. You know, you just think positive. And, oh, good vibes coming your way. Good thoughts coming your way. That'll just solve all your problems. No, it won't. <laughs> and so, you know, we bring this now into our faith. And then you say to me, Pastor, I'm supposed to sit at his feet in the body. And there's something in us that just keeps, which is the ego, which is the flesh, Paul would say, that I'm going to do it my way. I don't, I don't want to do it this way. But Jesus made it very clear in this passage, and this goes counterculture when he said this. Because this is the reality of this metaphor that he's giving us. He is the vine, we are the branches, we are to stay connected to him. And if we don't, read this with me. Without me, you can do nothing. And that is the reality. That's a humbling moment when we realize that without him, we can do nothing. I like what someone said. A life wrapped up in itself is a pretty small package. And so this abiding... What is this supposed to look like for us? How do we do this? How do we dwell? How do we linger with him? J.C. Ryle explains, To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out your hearts to him, and using him as your fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. Now that's quite a bit in there. But basically it's saying it's a 24-7 lifestyle. It's not just a Sunday morning experience. 
It's something that is done continually, hour by hour. Three keys to abiding, someone else said, and they're simple. We've talked about these before, but we walk by faith. Daily, we're walking by faith. Daily, we're inviting Christ into our day. I don't know how you pray when you get up into the morning, but when you wake up in the morning, inviting him into your day, what you will be going through, what you will be experiencing. And then spend focused time on him. We all need to carve time out of our busy schedules. Remember, we don't take time, we make time. Again, you know, like we, we said often, uh, we will say to people, so how are you doing? And we say it to them when? As we're walking out the room. Because we know that's just common right, decency to say to somebody when you see them, Oh, hi, how you doing? And we're in a busy day with lots of kinds of things going on and we'll walk right past. We don't really care how they're doing. We've just said a nice phrase. Because if I came and I sat down with you, and looked at you in the eyes and said, so how do you do that? You would know that I stopped long enough to show care, and I'm asking you because I want to hear the answer. And you know, somebody said this week, rightfully, that's what we're supposed to do with Christ, is we're to make ourselves present in his presence. Instead of, I'm in a hurry, Lord, so you just, this quick little, you know, and I'm done. And so there is this time where we all, life is crazy and life is busy. And if we're going to keep this relationship and seem like any of our relationships, we need to intentionally carve out times daily. And then we need to do those intentional actions that we know that strengthens our relationship with him. This is no different than our relationship with a friend or a relationship with our spouses. We need to do those things. To go and do and spend time together that's going to make our relationship rich. And so it's the same thing we do with our Lord. Now interesting enough, Jesus does warn though, that if you remain in him, you will keep his commandments. So if you are a disciple and you are remaining and dwelling in Christ in great relationship, you're not going to be going out and doing things that he has made clearly known in his word you shouldn't be doing. And he also makes it very clear that one of the greatest fruits that we will see, and actually that's part of Wesleyan theology, and we as the Church of the Nazarene believe that the sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is love. And so he's saying, you know, you can't say that you have great communion with me, and I am in you, and you are in me, but you don't love. Then you've missed it. And so this is that one of the greatest fruits that we will see is that we are bearing this wonderful love. And so Jesus today doesn't want to be just your strength. He wants to be your sustenance as his disciple. And there is that wonderful reality if we understand this and start to move in. And I'm not saying we've got it all figured out. I'm sure the disciples that night didn't have it all figured out. But we can work towards this and have a greater understanding and Jesus says that if I abide in you and you abide in me, then you will bear fruit. You will be that fruitful branch. See, God wants us to bear fruit. 
Because if we're not bearing fruit, then he says very clearly in this metaphor, we're useless. He wants us to be fruit-bearing. And he will sometimes do some drastic and painful things in our lives to prune us in order that there will be a great harvest later on in our lives. And so there is this idea, though, <laughs> you know, you can't just, I want to bear fruit, and then fruit is supposed to bear it is a, and you don't work at it. That, that's the thing that we struggle with. You don't work at this. This is a natural outflow of your connection with God. So if you are connected with Christ, and he is connected with you, naturally, your life will bear fruit. That's, you leave with the Holy Spirit. But it's that connection that does that naturally. It's not something that you have to produce. Now, I have to be clear to God's word. There is also a warning here, isn't there? There is a warning here for fruitless branches. See, true life apart from Jesus is hopeless. Severed from him, they are lost, and they are impotent. They are unable to do anything. I like what Barclay said here. Jesus was thinking of Christians whose Christianity consisted of profession without practice, words without deeds. He was thinking of Christians who were useless branches, all leaves and no fruit. And Jesus warns us here that uselessness invites disaster. I often think about, even when we were at Bible school, <clears throat> you know when you're at Bible school, you're your own worst enemy. When you're at Bible school, you're going to show everyone how it should be done. And you're going to, we had, we had people, we went and we were in Germany in Bible school in all different languages. And we had all these ones who were going to, you know, do the church and it was going to explode. And they were going to preach and thousands would get saved and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And very excited about it all. And I think God blesses the fact that people are excited. And uh, we, had, we had some friends at the time that they had that kind of attitude. They were younger than us. And they were sent into Eastern Germany when Eastern Germany first opened up. And they came back defeated. One of the hardest places to go and minister, and it should have been, you know, there was a lot of things that happened there because it should have been the mature Christians and pastors who went into Eastern Germany to start the new work. And they took young people right from Bible school and put them in situations, and they came back totally defeated. Because there was a reality that, and I think we have all done this in our lives, if we walk any time with the Lord, where we are doing it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show people. I'm going to. And there's no fruit. It doesn't work. Because ultimately, it's about being connected to Him. Him being in us and us being in Him and allowing Him to produce the fruit in our lives. And sometimes God will allow us to go through that time of humility in order for us to grow and mature and understand that without Him, we can do nothing. And I would say in my own spiritual journey, without Him, I am nothing. As I bring this to a close today, this passage is not meant to depress you. 
because Jesus is showing his great love to his disciples as they're walking towards that garden where he will soon be arrested and he's trying to get the truth into them and he's giving them promises here. He, he's trying to say to them, if you abide in me and I abide in you, he tells us in verse 7 and verse 16, you can ask for things and, and things will be given to you. Prayers will be answered. He says in verse 8, he tells them that God is going to be glorified through them. In verse 9 and 10, he says, we will be motivated by love and we will want to keep his commands. In verse 11, he says, and our joy will reach its maximum expression. I remember, I'll share in, in the worship and common team, and I'll share a story in my own journey, my own life, in closing. I was interim pastor in the church in Oakville at the time, and there were a lot of things going on in the church, a lot of politics going on in the church, and it really bothered me, and I was heartbroken over it, and I was brought in as intern, and my role as intern was to get the church ready for the new pastor that was coming. I didn't realize at the time that I ended up being the new pastor, and I was there for 14 years. Uh, but I was praying for the new pastor. <laughs> And as I was praying for the new pastor, you know, I was troubled by some of the things I was seeing going on in the church. But I had no role in it. I had no say in it. I was just there as their interim pastor. And I didn't realize all this that was being internalized and I was struggling with. There was a group that we would pray together every Tuesday morning, a group of pastors from all different denominations. And I would go in there Tuesday mornings. We'd have great times of prayer as we prayed for Halton, as we prayed for Oakville in that area. And I remember this particular morning, I went, and we're starting to pray, and I'm weeping, and I'm weeping, and I'm weeping. I can't stop the weeping, and I don't know what's going on. Like, I'm almost embarrassed. I'm here to pray. What am I doing here weeping? And these men of God that were great encouragers and supporters of me, they just said, wait a minute, wait a minute. we got to stop. We, we need to stop praying. We need to pray for Betty. And, you know, they said some wonderful prayers over me. You know, praise God for Christians that pray over us and have beautiful prayers. But then all of a sudden, somebody prayed what needed to be prayed. And the first thing they said to me, and, and I've often shared this with women in ministry, preparing for ministry, and others too. The first thing he said, as he laid hands on me and prayed, he says, Betty, you don't have to prove anything. And see, I was trying to prove something, that I was worthy, that I could do this, that I could make this happen. I was a female pastor, and I could lead the church. And a lot of women in ministry can fall into that fault of trying to prove something to someone. And I thought, man, that's what I've been doing. And then he said, when the storms of life hit, move back into Christ. That was the only statement he said that has stayed with me all my life in ministry. When the storms of life come at us, it's a time that we move back into Christ. Spend time with Him. Sit at His feet. Hear from Him. Let Him renew you, refresh you, and tell you how much He loves you, how much He cares for you, how much He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And that's going to be okay. Let Him begin to be your life source and to help you and to fill you and then you can step back out into life and ministry and whatever life means for you.
And that's a word that I leave you with today as we talk about Him abiding in us and us abiding in Him. Move back into Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would help us to understand the reality, even though it goes counterculture, that without you we can do nothing. And some of us need to get to a place where we admit that. I don't have it all together. I can't figure it all out. Isn't that actually what midlife crisis is all about? So many go through midlife crisis and realize that all that I had planned and all that I thought was going to happen at this season in my life isn't happening. And so there comes a moment where we need to confess today, God, without you, we can do nothing. But with you, your word says, we can do all things. And so, Lord, we thank you today for your salvation, our union with you because of the sacrifice of Christ. But I pray that we would have sweet communion with you, Lord. That we would understand what it is to sit at your feet. We would take those times where we would just sense that we have moved back into you. That we are getting our sustenance from you, divine. That, that we are being uh, filled with your presence and your Holy Spirit and purpose and love to be able to go out and face the situations before us, to face a new day or a new week or a new month or whatever is happening, a new season. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn this rhythm of life that you have given us. Thank you that you are divine. Thank you, Father, that you prune us. <laughs> and we don't like those shears. But there are times in our lives that there is pruning that goes on that we might not bear just some fruit, but much fruit for your glory. And I pray that these will be the most fruitful days for those listening in my and listening to me today or online. And I pray that these will be the most fruitful days for the Elmsdale Church of the Nazarene. The world would say to us in the pandemic and the COVID and everything else, that can't happen. But God, we know with you, it can't. Because this should be something in these last two years that should have driven us and should continue to drive us closer to Christ, not further away. Closer to each other, not further away. Help us to enjoy. Help us to enjoy. To sit down with each other. To enjoy each other's presence. And most importantly, Lord, to sit down with you and enjoy your presence too, we pray. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for those who have gathered. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.